0: In our study of the Olivet Discourse, we have seen that after Jesus had answered question two, by giving the events of the tribulation leading up to his second coming, he went back in time in order to answer question three, which asked for the sign of the end of the age, or the tribulation. The last part of his answer was to give the disappearance of believers in the rapture as the final sign to the world before the tribulation starts. In Matthew 24, 37 to 39, he said... The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus pointed to three similarities between the days of his coming and the days of Noah. First, just as in the days of Noah, normal life went on until the day that the waters of the flood started to fall. So, normal life will be going on right up to the day when the tribulation judgments start to fall. It will happen suddenly, with no special warning signs. Second, just as the key event that marked the transition to sudden judgment in the days of Noah was the disappearance of the believers into the ark, so the key event that marks the transition Into the tribulation is the disappearance of the believers into Christ when he comes in the rapture. So the final thing that will happen before the tribulation judgments fall will be the removal of the believers into Christ, the ark of our salvation. Third, just as Noah's flood started to fall on the very same day that he entered the ark, so the tribulation flood will start to fall on the very same day as his coming in the rapture. In both cases, it's a worldwide judgment, so that no one on earth will be able to escape it. So, worldwide judgment will suddenly fall on the world on the day of the Lord's coming, just as the worldwide judgment of the flood suddenly fell on the very day Noah entered the ark. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 agrees with this when it says, The day of the Lord, the tribulation, will come just like a thief in the night, the rapture. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains, upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The fact that the tribulation starts on the same day as the rapture means, that is, coming to remove the believers in the rapture, is what initiates the time of tribulation judgment. We can understand this connection in two ways. First, In 2 Thessalonians 2, the church indwelt by the Holy Spirit is described as restraining the spirit of Antichrist. But when the restrainer is removed in the rapture, the forces of evil are released to come into full manifestation, especially through the Antichrist. And this is one of the special characteristics of the tribulation. Secondly, another characteristic of the tribulation is that it's a time of divine judgment and wrath upon the whole world, just like Noah's flood. But God has promised the church that he's delivered us from the wrath of God, so it would not be righteous of God to subject the church to the tribulation wrath of God. Therefore God must remove his believers to a place of safety before releasing his judgment. Since this judgment is upon the whole earth, he must first come and remove us from the earth, and then there's no more reason to delay his judgment. So immediately after the rapture, he begins the time of judgment. Therefore, it will be just as in the days of Noah. First, God separated and removed the believers, so that they were lifted up above the waters of the flood, above the scene of judgment. Then, as soon as he's made the believers safe, he immediately released his judgments on the earth. Likewise, Jesus will return and lift us above the earth, removing us from the scene of judgment. And then he'll immediately start releasing the judgments of the tribulation. Jesus confirmed this in a similar passage in Luke 17, where he compared this time to the days of Lot. Luke 17:28 says, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. You see, the days leading up to the tribulation judgment are likened to the days leading up to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. From one point of view, it's life as normal, with no obvious sign that judgment's about to fall. In fact, these towns were very prosperous. But from another point of view, we know there was great immorality that was not only accepted, but publicly approved and promoted by the society. Then Jesus said in Luke seventeen twenty-nine and 30, But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Again we see that God removed the believers from the scene of judgment before releasing his judgment on the cities. Clearly, as in the days of Noah, God withheld his judgment until he had removed the believers, for he wouldn't be just in pouring out his wrath on the righteous. Now we can understand why the very same day the believers were removed, God's judgment fell from heaven. Jesus said that the same thing will happen when he comes to save us and reveal himself to us in the rapture. First, he will remove us from the scene of judgment, which is the earth, and then on the very same day he will initiate the judgments of the tribulation. It's interesting from the story in Genesis 18 that Christ himself came to earth with his angels to rescue Lot and to initiate the judgment of the cities. Since the time of divine judgment starts at the beginning of the tribulation, not at its end, all these passages speak of a coming of the Lord before the tribulation to save his own and to initiate judgment, as well as his coming at the end of the tribulation. We complete our study now of the Olivet Discourse with the concluding words of Jesus in Luke 21, which emphasize that the tribulation will be a worldwide judgment from which there will be no escape for those who are on the earth, just as in the flood in the days of Noah. Luke twenty one thirty four says, Take heed to yourselves, lest that day, that's the day of the Lord or tribulation, come on you unawares. For as a snare, that's as a trap that will suddenly snap tight. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things, the things of the tribulation, that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He promises to provide an escape from the tribulation trap for those who are counted worthy. They will escape from all these things of the tribulation that will come on all those who are on the earth. He doesn't talk about enduring through these things. This escape is the rapture. Instead of going through the tribulation, we will stand in our new bodies before the Son of Man and give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the only way to escape all these things is a pre-tribulation rapture. A mid-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation rapture would only be an escape from some of these things. Now, since the tribulation is worldwide and affects all who dwell on the earth, and since these worthy ones are promised an escape from all these things that will take place upon the earth, it's obvious that this escape must involve a removal from the scene of judgment, which is the whole earth. Bef- and that removal must happen before all these things of the tribulation take place. And this agrees with the two examples Jesus used for this event. First, God removed Noah into the ark before the flood fell, raising him above the earth and the waters of judgment, rather than protecting him under water. Second, God removed Lot from Sodom, the scene of judgment, before sending the judgment down, rather than preserving him through the bombardment. There's no language here of preservation through judgment. Jesus confirms this in Revelation 3.10, where he doesn't just promise believers protection from judgment, but deliverance from the very time period of the tribulation judgment. Revelation 3.10, this is Jesus speaking, he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Therefore, to fulfill this promise, God must provide an escape from the earth itself, before the tribulation begins for those counted worthy. This exactly describes the pre-tribulation rapture. Then he adds that once they've been removed from the earth, their new location will be standing in the very presence of Christ in their resurrection bodies. So Jesus will come to take his chosen ones to himself, gathering them together to himself just before all these things, that is, all the events of the tribulation, come to pass on the earth. And so Luke 21, 34-36 is a plain statement of the pre-tribulation rapture. Notice that these verses describing the removal or taking of true believers into the presence of Christ before the tribulation confirms that when he talked earlier about one being taken and the other left behind, it was referring to the taking of believers in the rapture and not the taking, of, taking away of unbelievers in judgment at the second coming. So, how can one be counted worthy to be in the rapture. This language agrees perfectly with the gospel. No sinful man could actually be worthy of receiving salvation or anything from God. But it doesn't say that they're worthy but they are counted worthy and there's only one way anyone can be counted worthy of salvation or reckoned as righteous before God and that's through receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ as a free gift. On the cross Jesus accomplished the great exchange in himself of our sin for his righteousness so that when we receive Christ our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to us as a totally free gift of his grace. Only in this way are we counted worthy of salvation. So how can you be ready for the rapture? How can you be rapture ready? First receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and second prove the genuineness of your faith by a changed life. Now we will look at more of the teaching of Jesus on the rapture. We've seen that to the world his coming in the rapture will be like a thief in the night. Jesus also taught that for the church it will be like the bridegroom coming for his bride to take us home and to be with him forever. John 14, ...records his tender words as the bridegroom, promising his bride that although he must go away and prepare their marital home, he will come again to fetch her to be with him. John 14 says, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This will be fulfilled in the rapture. This is our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ for his bride. He's coming soon to take us home. Redemption is a divine romance, which comes to a climax in the rapture. In those days, the bride didn't know exactly when the bridegroom would return for her. So she had to prepare herself and always stay ready. Right now, the church needs to be preparing for that romantic moment when her bridegroom comes and rescues her from the time of tribulation, lifting her up into his presence. The tribulation is a time when Christ wages war on the world system. What bridegroom would leave his beloved bride in a place that he was about to bombard if he had the power to extract her? Surely he will rescue her from this terrible time of God's outpoured wrath. Understanding the marriage customs of Bible times gives us much insight into Bible prophecy and the romance of redemption and God's ultimate purpose in saving us. Let's now go through these customs. First... The marriage is planned and arranged by the father of the bridegroom, who chooses a bride for his son. Likewise, the Father God planned a marriage for his son and chose the church as his bride. Second, the father negotiates with her family and a bride price is paid, representing her value. The price paid for the bride was the blood of Jesus. He came the first time to win his bride by demonstrating his love, laying his life down for her and thus paying the bride price. Third, once the agreement was made, they would eat and drink wine together, signifying they were now in covenant. At this point, the couple are betrothed. Likewise, when we receive Christ, accepting his offer to belong to him, we are betrothed to him. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians eleven two, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you to him as a pure virgin. We now belong to Christ, united to him by covenant through his blood, destined to become his wife. Fourth, gifts would be given to the bride from the bridegroom. Likewise, gifts and blessings are poured upon us by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Fifth, they may never have seen each other face to face. We've not seen Jesus face to face, but we love him and we eagerly await his return. Sixth, after the betrothal, the bridegroom goes away to his father's house promising to return. There he prepares the marital home. Only when the father says everything is ready can the son return. Likewise, Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us and has promised to come back for us. Meanwhile, the bride makes herself ready. She makes herself glorious. She prepares her wedding dress to be dressed like a queen. She wants him to be pleased when he looks upon her. She keeps herself pure, for all her hopes are now looking toward the day of her marriage, when she will see her bridegroom face to face and be with him forever. Likewise, we prepare ourselves for when we will see Jesus face to face, as 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now we're children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are sanctified by the blood and the washing of the word so that when he returns we will be ready. Our wedding garment in that day will be his glory corresponding to our good works which he will release in us at his return when he rewards us according to our works. Eighth, no one knows the exact time of the wedding which happens when the bridegroom returns for his bride. Even the bride doesn't know exactly when the bridegroom will come for her. She must stay ready even if he seems to be delayed. Likewise, no one knows the time of Christ's return for his bride in the rapture. He tells us, I'm coming quickly. There's great excitement in heaven and earth as the time gets near. Ninth, at the father's signal, when he judges all things to be ready, the bridegroom returns for his bride. Likewise, when the bride is ready and complete, when the full number are saved, then the father will turn to the son and say, go get her. Tenth, the bridegroom dressed as a king, goes in joyful procession with his friends to the bride's house. There's great excitement. He enters the house and carries the bride out and brings her back to the place he's prepared for her. Likewise, when Jesus returns for his church, it will be to take his bride home, to be with him forever. In the rapture of the church, he comes in joyful procession with shouts and trumpets, and we will be lifted up to meet the Lord in the air. This is a romantic moment as he carries off his bride, delivering her from the tribulation in order to be with him forever. Eleventh, back at his house, she makes her final preparations to be ready for a brief family wedding ceremony, including putting on her wedding dress. Likewise, back in heaven, the bride is prepared to be presented spotless and glorious to Christ. To be ready, she must go through the judgment seat of Christ first, where she's cleansed from all unworthy dead works that she's wearing. She's also rewarded for her good works with a corresponding glory that will be released through her that, and that will radiate out of her, which is now her clothing. Twelfth, in the wedding ceremony, the bride is unveiled and presented to the bridegroom in all her beauty, and they see each other face to face, for until now she's been veiled. and They are now married, and she's his wife. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, that's no physical blemish, or wrinkle, that's no sign of age, or any such thing, but, but that she would be holy and blameless, that means inwardly pure and perfect. Likewise, at this point, Christ and his church will be married and the bride will now become the wife of the Lamb and they will reign together forever as king and queen. We will have our eternal marital home in the New Jerusalem. In a vision of the church in heaven, just before the second coming, this wedding ceremony has already taken place. Revelation 19:7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, that means it's happened, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, Having passed through the judgment seat of Christ where her dead works were consumed by fire, she is now dressed only in white glorious linen, shining with the glory of God according to the reward that she received for her good works that received approval at the judgment seat. Thirteenth, the couple next go into a special bridal chamber where the marriage is consummated. Likewise, the church has seven years in heaven before the marriage feast of close face-to-face fellowship with Christ, where our union with him will be brought to completion on every level, his glory filling our whole beings. Fourteenth, they then appear together and lead a procession to the marriage feast. The herald cries out, the bridegroom comes, so, and this is so that the invited guests know to come to the feast. Christ will re- then return to the earth with his church as husband and wife in his second coming for the marriage feast which takes place on the earth. In Revelation nineteen seven and 8, we saw the wife in heaven dressed in white linen. Then verses 9 to 14 say, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. This is the wife, according to the previous verses. This is the church. This confirms that the rapture must take place before the second coming. Fifteenth. The invited guests join in the celebrations, which will last a week at the start of the millennium. General invitations had already been sent out to friends to invite them to the wedding, so they could be ready to come. Among the wedding guests for this feast will be the believers on earth at the end of the tribulation. During the tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached, inviting all people to come and be part of this feast and the kingdom age that follows. But only those who are ready, who have received Christ and have oil in the lamps, that is, the Holy Spirit in their spirits, only these will be able to enter into the Feast and the Millennium. The unbelievers, with no oil, will be excluded. This is the scenario of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, when Jesus returns with his wife to earth at the end of the Tribulation for the marriage feast. These virgins are not the bride, but the companions of the bride in the Feast. They are the people alive on earth when the bridegroom returns. When he comes, he separates these ones into two groups, depending on whether they are ready or not. So the rapture is part of a joyful wedding procession with shouts and trumpets as the bridegroom comes to take his bride to himself, to be with him forever, face to face, fulfilling his love for her. He delivers his bride from this evil world and lifts her up to a higher life with him. In the time in between the betrothal and the wedding, the bride must prepare to meet him and be ready for when her bridegroom comes for her. Pictures of this romance of redemption are seen in Old Testament marriages, which are types of Christ and the church. Ruth is redeemed by Boaz and becomes his wife, and Esther, who after a long period of preparation and beautification, is presented before the king who then marries her. Other marriages also contain pictures of the rapture. For example... Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. God had a plan for us before sin came in, which was revealed before the fall in the marriage of Adam and Eve, a picture of Christ and the church. His plan is more than saving us from sin. It's for us to be eternally united with Christ as his bride. Adam is a type of Christ. God's purpose, revealed in Adam, is fulfilled in Christ. It's not God's best for Christ to rule alone. So in Genesis 2, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took flesh and bone from Adam's side and made woman from it and brought and presented her to Adam. And he said, she was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Likewise, the Father provided a bride for Jesus through his sleep of death. This sleep represents an aspect of Christ's death that has got nothing to do with sin. Rather, it's the laying down and giving up of his life to release it to us and to make his bride. A second example is Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24. This is another story of a marriage made in heaven, a picture of the divine romance. Isaac, the only beloved son of Abraham, who had previously been offered as a sacrifice in Genesis 22, he's a type of Christ. They both experienced a death and resurrection, after which they both received their bride. The chief servant, whose name is Eliezer, which means helper, is a type of the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father to find a bride for his son. Rebecca, is the chosen bride, is a type of the church. Likewise, the Father sent the Spirit to the earth to find and call out a bride. As the gospel is preached, he calls this bride to come to Jesus and receive him as her head. Meanwhile, Isaac remained in his inheritance. Likewise, Jesus remained in heaven while the bride is being called and prepared. And finally, the bride will be brought to the bridegroom. Rebekah responded positively to the servant, who would have glorified Isaac, telling her all about him, his sacrifice, his character, his rich inheritance, and the promises and covenant from God that assured his future. And she would have been able to partake all of all of these things in Isaac. This is a picture of the Spirit preaching the gospel to every person, calling them to Christ. And then he proposed to her and called for a decision. If it was no, he would go elsewhere. Rebecca believed him and said yes. And when we say yes to Jesus, we are then betrothed to him, even though we've never seen him. Abraham had told the servant to take a wife for Isaac, which was only accomplished when she stood before Isaac. First he called her. Then he led her on a journey to Isaac, leaving our old life behind. Finally, she was presented to Isaac to be his wife. Likewise, the Spirit first calls us to Christ, then he takes us out of our old life in the world and takes us on a new journey with him that has a heavenly destination where we will stand before Jesus. And finally, at the rapture, we're taken into Christ's presence to be his wife. The decision was Rebecca's. In Genesis 24:57, she was asked, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go." She decided to leave the old life and start at once on the new journey with the servant. This journey is a picture of the present Christian life in this world. She was now following the leading of the servant who knew the way. Now Isaac was the most important one for her. Likewise we are called to to leave the old life and walk in the spirit and he leads us closer to Jesus. On the journey, she didn't see Isaac, but she believed in him and she was committed to him, rejoicing in the hope of seeing him. It was a long, difficult journey of faith to reach her final destination and her permanent inheritance, but she had a personal guide and helper. On the journey, the servant told her all she wanted to know about Isaac and his inheritance. In the hardship, she was inspired by the thought that the journey was temporary and soon she'd be with her Isaac forever. Her thoughts were focused on when she would see him. The last time Isaac was seen was when he was sacrificed. The next time he's seen is when he comes to meet his bride. He's been waiting for her and preparing a place for her. As, Re- as, as Rebecca reached the end of her journey, Isaac came for her out of his dwelling place. Also at the end of the 2,000 year journey of the church, Jesus will come out from heaven for his bride. At the rapture, Jesus will come down from heaven and signal the Spirit to take us up to meet him in the air, just as Rebekah was taken up to meet Isaac. Then Rebekah saw Isaac for the first time, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And this speaks of the consummation of our salvation at the rapture, when we will enjoy eternal face-to-face fellowship, united with him and sharing his glory, authority, and inheritance as his beloved wife. As Rebecca was brought into Isaac's presence to dwell with him as his wife, so in the rapture we will be lifted up, transformed and presented before Christ as his glorious bride. This is when the marriage takes place and we will be eternally united with him as his wife.